This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Ambassador Darcy Vetter, former Chief Agriculture Negotiator and current diplomat in residence with the University of Nebraska. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by EDGE, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ambassador Darcy Vetter next. EDGE is the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. EDGE gives every dairy farmer a progressive voice in matters critical to their business and the dairy community. EDGE provides leading-edge member representation and addresses farmers' diverse needs and challenges. EDGE is an energetic, forward-thinking organization representing all farmers equally, recognizing both the differences and similarities in farms, regardless of size, business goals, geography, and ownership. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The U.S. withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and comments on the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement have agriculture groups more than a little concerned about the Trump administration's position on trade. Ambassador Darcy Vetter is now advisor for the Farmers for Free Trade Coalition. Ambassador Vetter says the industry should not be surprised with the events of the day. International trade negotiations and the processes around them are kind of difficult to understand. And, you know, nerdy trade negotiators like myself sometimes speak in a language that not everybody understands, which is in part why an effort like Farmers for Free Trade is so important to put in very clear and and plain-spoken arguments the value of our trade relationships. But, you know, frankly, I've spoken to a number of farmers and ranchers who said, you know, I I know there was some talk about how NAFTA was bad and maybe we want to renegotiate it and redo it, but I actually didn't know that the president had authority to do this or I didn't understand the process of how you could enter into or pull out of agreements. And, frankly, just understanding how countries talk to one another and all that would be involved in doing that wasn't really clear to me other aspects of issues we've heard on the campaign seemed more tangible and and more real. And I think that's a fair point. You know, it it can be hard to say, well, we might want X, but if Canada and Mexico want Y, how does this process really play out? And so I think, you know, efforts to really demystify that process and to help um, advocate for larger trade relationships as well as just specific provisions are important. And I don't think people are completely surprised that we're re-examining these relationships, but I do think there is some surprise that as as many of the fundamentals of uh, those relationships have been called into question, and certainly as we dig deeper on what the impact might be, I think there is growing concern uh, across all of U.S. agriculture about that. October trade deficit was $48.7 billion, and through 10 months of the year, the trade deficit close to $463 billion. What does that say about the U.S. and our relationships with trade? I think what it says about the United States is that we continue to be the consumer of last resort and that our economy is driven largely by um, consumer behavior. So, I I think trade deficits are something that, you know, certainly have been the language of concern or the lens through which this administration is is viewing our trade relationships and 
maybe a sort of a scorecard as to whether we're winning or losing. But I don't actually think it's a good indicator of the strength of our trade relationships with other countries. Um, when we look just at the trade deficit, it says what's just going back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico or the U.S. and the EU. But it doesn't talk about what that trade might generate in other economic activity. So if I import a product from Mexico and I use those inputs to create a new product that I add value to and then sell to the EU, well, I might have a trade deficit with Mexico, but I might have created more value and new jobs in the U.S. because of that, um, even though I sold the product elsewhere. So the idea that you just look at the plus and minus from one country uh, to another and then decide whether that's a win for the U.S. economy or not, I think is a really reductionist approach to what had been the underlying approach to trade policy, which was the opportunity to create these global value chains, to add value where maybe we couldn't because products weren't produced here, and to access as many markets globally as possible so we can sell in the places that make the most sense. So in the same vein, in this NAFTA renegotiation, is there more to gain or lose than just dollars? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Mexico and Canada have been important partners for us at the negotiating table when it comes to things like a, a WTO negotiation or even in the context of negotiating TPP, Mexico and Canada helped us push for stronger standards for food safety and animal and plant health for science-based decision-making, for transparency in the way that rules are made. Um, they're not only our good partners um, north and south in uh, the goods that move back and forth, they share a similar approach uh, to how we operate globally and to helping break down the barriers we often face in, in third countries. Um, you also have to remember that we've pretty much taken NAFTA for granted for 20-plus years. And so when the United States, when our companies do business, they are accustomed to the fact that goods are flowing duty-free or that there are certain processes they can, can count on, long-term customer relationships. And if those are disrupted, they don't materialize again uh, with other countries overnight. Uh, it took a long time to build. And so this negotiation in particular is very different than those past in that we're not building something, you know, turning threads into cloth. We have a fully formed piece of cloth here, and there would be a significant effects to disrupting that. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue quoted recently saying that President Trump knows what he's doing in these NAFTA negotiations. Uh, U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer offering some very challenging proposals uh, to both Canada and Mexico and said he's disappointed that they haven't countered. The president has openly said he's willing to walk away from the deal. How is this different than previous attitudes of administrations on behalf of the U.S. and trade? Well, I think, again, in past trade negotiations, there has been strong buy-in from all the parties at the table uh, to want to create something and find a, a way through. Um, if, in fact, not succeeding is an option, I think that makes it hard for our trading partners to respond. You know, is your goal here in offering these proposals that seem um, – like the sunset proposal that seemed pretty intractable or perhaps one-sided, 
um, is your goal here to strengthen the agreement or is the goal to create conditions that are so difficult that withdrawal becomes a more attractive option? Um, you know, I think when you have competing messages out there, it actually makes it harder for negotiators to dig into the substance and perhaps find common ground. And so uh, I think, you know, as folks look at the the atmosphere surrounding the negotiations, they're trying to find uh, the best route forward or try to determine, you know, what is that path that the that is being created to get to a successful outcome. Uh, you know, we've we've heard some statements that you know maybe we'll have to withdraw. Others, like Secretary Purdue, saying you know we want a successful NAFTA. Um, what's difficult to see from the outside right now is what's the the path to get there, and what are the the real priorities then of uh, the United States that could help lead us to a, a good negotiated outcome. It was mused by one analyst that Mexico and Canada might actually be counting on U.S. agriculture and our presence and voice to prevent the administration from walking away and therefore perhaps preventing us from getting the best deal, in fact, that we would not leave the negotiations. Well, I think um, there are a lot of dynamics at play right now at the table, and certainly some pretty tough proposals that have been uh, put forward by the United States that Canada and Mexico have yet to respond to. But I think it's also important to look at the fact that a number of those proposals would actually hurt big sectors of the U.S. economy as well. And so I think what you're seeing is what you should expect, which is that different groups, whether it's agriculture or manufacturers or automakers, um, the Chamber of Commerce, reviewing these different proposals and advocating for those they think are in their interest. Uh, after 20 years of an agreement like NAFTA, I think it's hard to say that there are very many issues that are purely a Mexico issue or a Canada issue because our businesses are so integrated. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk to a group of CEOs in a number of big agribusinesses, and they didn't talk about their Mexican operations or their Canadian operations or their U.S. operations. They talked about their North American presence because they think of it in an integrated way. And so I think the reaction you're seeing from the business community is simply that our economies are largely together, and you can't uh, have an impact on one without impacting the other. So, um, you know, it may be that that makes it harder for the U.S. to walk away, but I think that's the reality of how business is done in North America. Farmers and U.S. ag representatives that had visited Mexico recently have experienced what they describe as a different attitude among end users. And, in fact, Mexico has increased yellow corn purchases dramatically this year. In your opinion, has damage already been done? Well, I think, you know, you've just said uh, what what we have seen, and I think that's pretty normal behavior if you're trying to, to mitigate risk, that if you're not sure what the terms uh, of trade will be, maybe diversifying your purchases is a good way to make sure you can get product uh, when you want it. So we have seen a decrease in corn sales. We do see uh, Chilean apples on grocery store shelves in Mexico where it used to be uh, largely U.S. product there. Um, you hear anecdotal evidence about countries or companies who are going to wait and see before they make investments uh, in Mexico or in the United States um, who want to understand the NAFTA climate better. And 
I'm not sure that that will change, even if we successfully negotiate NAFTA. Secretary Guajardo, the Mexican Minister of the Economy, has spoken to groups on a couple of occasions and said, if this NAFTA process has taught us anything, it was that, as a whole, Mexico has become far too dependent on just one supplier, and that that's probably not good for our long-term stability and for us to manage risk. And unlike 20-some years ago when we began the NAFTA discussion and there weren't that many competitors who could supply the things that we did affordably and on time and of good quality, we have a lot of competition in the global marketplace. And Mexico and Canada both continue to forge new trade deals with some of those competitors. So I'm not sure we will fully return to the market share we once enjoyed in Mexico, for example, but, you know, I, I do think U.S. ag products are second to none, and our proximity to our partners should make us the, the supplier of choice, uh, and we need to make sure that our, our trade relationship really helps bolster that. If confirmed, how can Greg Dowd, as U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator, help in these discussions? Well, Greg can help immensely, and I am uh, hopeful that he will be confirmed very soon. Uh, He is a talented uh, person and will be a great servant for U.S. agriculture. You know, I think the job of the chief ag negotiator is just to make sure that at all times the USTR understands really the impact and the dynamics of our, our agricultural economy um, both how agriculture can help in creating the political support needed to pass a negotiated NAFTA through Congress, but also the economic impact and how you know changes in one place might affect different farmers differently. Um, different products are, are more or less sensitive to uh, trade. They have, may have greater opportunities in one market versus another. And frankly, Agriculture has always been the sector of the economy that was most protected. We have the, you know, quotas and safeguards and some of these complicated trade tools that you don't see so much in other sectors. And so having a person to really keep their eye on how all of those mechanisms will change uh, is is really important. So I, I hope he's in his chair very soon. If there is a common denominator among trade agreements, it is that perhaps deadlines get moved back. And we've seen that... <laughs> And we've seen the deadline for this NAFTA now pushed back from the end of this year to the end of March. If you could look in your ambassador crystal ball, do you think they'll make the end of March deadline? And given elections that are coming among partners, does that create some urgency to get this done on time? So um, so you noticed that trade negotiators aren't good with that deadline thing, huh? Um, <laughs> Yes, negotiations always uh, tend to take a bit longer than you think. Um, It was always extremely ambitious to think that uh, three countries with as deep and complex a relationship as Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. could renegotiate a full trade agreement in six months or so. So the pushback uh, to the spring is not at all surprising. Um, But I think it is concerning to look at the number of issues that remain outstanding and the lack of, of full discussion, even, of some of those issues. Um, what we're hearing outside of the negotiating room is that Mexico and Canada really have yet to engage on some of these proposals um, that are most contentious. And so even March, to me, seems like a very aggressive uh, deadline to try to finish. And, of course, once you get into Mexican election season, there will be a point in the spring 
when it will be hard for the Mexican negotiators to engage at all uh, because they're not um, they're not really allowed to make significant big decisions during the the most intense part of the campaign. So, you know, I think there's the potential here that this process could drag on for for quite some time, uh, not just through March. And there's certainly a lot of work to be done uh, between now and then. If you could set the agenda for trade for the U.S., understanding that bilateral was the preferred means, what would be your targets for countries? Well, I think that's a that's a good question, and I think Southeast Asia would be really at the top of of my list. And you know, I think the potential, particularly for U.S. agriculture, to help shape the consumer behavior of a growing middle class in some of those Southeast Asian economies is really important. And I think another really powerful part of TPP was the idea that you had a country like Vietnam and then Japan and the United States all signing on to the exact same standards. And, um, you know, all the analyses of TPP showed that the biggest winner in that uh, FTA would have been Vietnam. And so, you know, I think you can do high standard agreements with countries at different levels of development and seeing some success successful examples of that um, has the potential to really change uh, the dynamic for how we negotiate uh, agreements going forward. And uh, so I, I think those countries would be on the list. But, you know, enough time has passed if TPP is not a model they want to pursue. And, you know, years have passed uh, since we began that process. I think there's some analysis to be done to say which of those countries uh, in that region would be uh, the biggest uh, benefit for the U.S. You know, is it Vietnam? Is it the Philippines? Is Indonesia ready to take on a, a high standard agreement? Um, but, you know, I hope that, um, you know, USTR is currently looking at where are those potential partners and where might the U.S. Uh, benefit uh, the most from those. Part of your work now at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln is to help build on the legacy of former Ambassador for Trade and former Secretary of Agriculture, Clayton Yarder. Can you talk about your work and how it will help others and perhaps how others can help you? Well, uh, this is a really exciting uh, project that I'm working on now. Um, Clayton was both a mentor and a friend and obviously one of the architects of the institutions that we use to negotiate trade agreements, um, you know, helped create the foundation for today's WTO. No one talks about Clayton without talking about his broad smile and his booming laugh and the way that he was really tough negotiator at the table and yet had uh, deep and lasting and warm relationships with his negotiating partners. Uh, and I think that that model of civility and a long-term view of how we relate to others, whether that's um, just domestically in building coalitions or with our trading partners, uh, is an example we should all uh, keep in mind. Uh, he's very positive in that way. And so, you know, being able to work with a next generation of uh, leaders in global trade and in international finance is really exciting and to help you know, make the next uh, generation of students or the, you know, today's students at the University of Nebraska imagine themselves as being also architects of uh, global trade policy is uh, is really exciting and, and challenging. 
Um, Clayton and I are both farm kids from the middle of nowhere in Nebraska who have had the opportunity to, you know, sit at the table and represent our country, and I think both of us see that as a huge honor, um, but also realize that it can be hard on a little farm in Nebraska to imagine yourself in that role if you're not exposed to the people and the curriculum and opportunities to make that happen. And so to be able to help create those opportunities is really, really exciting. Madam Ambassador, I want to thank you personally for your effort in service to agriculture, your continued efforts in service to agriculture, and certainly wish you much success in the days ahead. Uh, it is a busy season, and we are grateful that you took time to be with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have the last word. Well, I guess my last word would be that in all of my experience uh, in working in ag and trade issues, there is no more effective voice uh, about the importance of trade and trade policy than when farmers and ranchers speak for themselves. And so I am just absolutely thrilled to be active with Farmers for Free Trade and helping farmers do just that and to amplify and to strengthen their voice uh, for good trade policy decisions here in the United States. Our thanks to Ambassador Darcy Vetter, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by EDGE, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Allen.